Too hot for tennis in Sydney, Australia, over 110 degrees courtside today, Tuesday, January 8th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. America loves its cars, but if the rest of the world follows suit, there will soon be 9 billion people on the planet driving almost that many cars. And those cars would take up enough land that it would take an area the size of the whole country of Bangladesh just for the parking spaces. So this is not going to happen. We'll look at whether car sharing could help. And later, school teachers in Mexico struggle with an influx of U.S.-born students. They feel so confused, and they don't understand everything that I teach in Spanish. Those stories coming up, First News. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline health care workers who help them along the health care journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Industry doesn't always agree with the people who live around it. And in China, where there is a lot of industry and, of course, a lot of people, the two often collide. The latest incident is pretty bad. In the northern province of Shanxi, the mayor of the city of Chengzhou has apologized for a chemical leak at a factory. Doesn't sound too bad, but it took five days to report the leak. And at that point, nearly nine tons of a chemical known as aniline used in making plastics had leaked into the local river and contaminated water in a neighboring province, leaving millions without water. It's a big mess. The world's Mary Kay Magstad is with us from Beijing. Uh, tell us what happened here with this spill. I mean, how, how did a spill in one province end up affecting two provinces? Okay, so what apparently happened was at least what the local government is saying is that there was faulty equipment at a state-owned uh, coal chemical plant and that this caused an, a lot of this chemical aniline to leak into the river. It may have been faulty equipment. There have been leaks in the past into waterways and lakes where factories basically didn't use the equipment that they had on hand because it was expensive to use. In this case, it may have actually been faulty equipment. What we do know is that the state-owned enterprise did not report the leak until it had been exposed through social media. And then the government had to respond to the anger online and then went to the state enterprise and said, what's going on? So are you saying that if if it had not been for social media, this delay might have been much longer than five days? It may have been longer than five days, but let's go back to 2005 when there was a similar leak of the same chemical on the Songhua River in northeastern China. There, too, there was a delay of about five or six days, which was how long it took for the spill to reach some major cities. So people knew that their drinking water was affected. In fact, the spill even reached Russia. So this became an international incident. Now, the difference is that at the time, Weibo, China's version of Twitter, didn't exist yet. So it wasn't broken online. Line. It was broken by uh, local people who were dealing with a water emergency. You know, mm. they had to get bottled water trucked in. This happened actually just a few days after there was another cover-up in Shanxi province. Uh, a railway tunnel collapsed after illegal blasting, and it killed eight workers. That, too, came out through social media. The government eventually had to react about five days later. So... Perhaps he's serious about being sort of blindsided by local 
local companies not reporting when they should have reported. But there's also been a longstanding culture in China of trying to cover up disasters. Mm. And in the past, it was possible because the government censors could issue directives saying, you will report on this this way, you will not mention this. And state-owned media had to comply. The problem is there are now more than half a billion Chinese online, and they don't feel they have to comply when they see that some injustice has been done, and they want to let other people know about it. Well, for more information on what this toxic chemical aniline is exactly, come to theworld.org. The World's Mary Kay Magsad in Beijing. Thank you. Thank you, Marco. And many of these half a billion Chinese internet users are demanding something that many here take for granted— Owning a car. It's not just the Chinese who want wheels. It's hundreds of millions throughout the developing world. That's a whole lot of new cars on the road, but there are alternatives. The world's Jason Margolis explores one of them. When John Sturman looks at cars and transportation systems in the not-too-distant future, he doesn't like what he sees. He's a professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management. If everybody in the world drove the way Americans do today then there'd be in 2050 about 9-plus billion people, according to the UN, and those 9 billion people would be driving 7.8 billion light-duty vehicles. And those vehicles would require five times the oil production as today, spewing out a lot more greenhouse gases. And those cars would take up enough land that it would take an area the size of the whole country of Bangladesh just for the parking spaces. But what's the answer, then, if we all want cars? One thought, we share them. Sturman loves this idea. He says more people need to really think about what car ownership entails. The insurance, the registration, the taxes, the parking, uh, the maintenance, all of that stuff that you pay for whether you're driving it or not. Most people, are, especially in cities, are coming to realize, no, this is a terrible thing. It's hugely expensive to own a personal vehicle. Here in Boston, as well as more than 50 other cities in North America and the U.K. and Spain, you can rent a zip car by the hour or day. Robin Chase co-founded the company in Boston 13 years ago. We started with four cars and uh, built it up from there. Today, Zipcar has a fleet of nearly 10,000 vehicles and 760,000 members. Each car is used by 40 to 60 people, and of those people... 15 to 20 sell or avoid buying a car. That's a lot less congestion and emissions. And Zipcar could be expanding soon. Last week, Avis bought Zipcar for around $500 million. Robin Chase is no longer affiliated with Zipcar. She's now working on another car-sharing startup in Paris and sees huge opportunities for growth in car-sharing globally. I just spent the last two years in Paris, and throughout Europe, it's a given and accepted fact that cities are going to be all become shared cars. Over the next 20 years, that's what we will see. And as we think about Asia and in India, those densely populated cities, American cities are one-fifth the density, population density of those cities. And those already crowded Chinese and Indian cities don't yet have that many cars either. David Friedman is the deputy director of the Clean Vehicles Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He says, consider this. Right now, there are about 700 cars per 1,000 people here in the U.S. In China, there's about 44 cars for every 1,000 people. In India, there's even less. There's only about 12 cars for every 1,000 people. So there's a lot of room for China and India car ownership to grow. The question is, are they going to take the U.S. model, where we've saturated car use, or are they going to adopt 
car sharing, so they don't follow the same path of congestion, pollution, and poor air quality that we tried over the last 40 years as our car ownership exploded. But do the Chinese want to share cars? Forget about it. No way. It's not going to happen. Unthinkable. Michael Dunn is a car consultant based in Hong Kong. Dunn says in Asia, cars are a social statement. It's an image factor, big image factor. At the office, you say, well, what kind of car are you driving? I'm driving a Honda, and this guy over here has a Nissan. I have a Chevy. Uh, What about you? Well, I'm sharing a car with somebody else. Oh, you're sharing a car? It means you can't afford one. But that doesn't mean attitudes can't change. People just need a nudge, says Susan Shaheen. She's co-director of the Transportation Sustainability Research Center at UC Berkeley. Her research shows that car sharing has been growing faster in the U.S. than in Canada, for example. When we look at the difference between Canada and the U.S., U.S. governments typically were much more supportive towards the car sharing concept in terms of grants, subsidies, access to on-street parking, and those types of things. So I think the role of the government is really important. And I think the signal in particular that it sends to the population in China is very important. In Singapore, the government has been sending that signal. Car taxes, tolls, and usage fees are making car ownership prohibitively expensive. It costs more than $65,000 just to buy a permit to own a car there. No real surprise, some car-sharing companies in Singapore are now open for business. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. A question for you listeners. Have you ever thought about trying a car-sharing program but decided not to? We'd like to know why. Add your thoughts at theworld.org. Rising demand from China and elsewhere in Asia drives lots of industries these days, even illegal ones like ivory smuggling. Authorities in China have reported a sharp increase in the amount of illegal ivory shipments they intercept. And of course, just yesterday, there was news of the latest massacre of elephants killed by poachers for their ivory tusks in Kenya. Jeffrey Gettleman covers the illicit ivory trade for The New York Times. He's in Nairobi. Uh, Jeff, you wrote that this was one of the worst episodes of poaching in Kenya. Tell us what exactly happened. Eleven elephants, all in one same family, were shot dead by poachers and had their ivory hacked out in one of the more a scenic and visited parks in the country, Savo East National Park. And what really scared people is that that level of poaching to wipe out an entire, you know, 11 uh, elephants in one fell swoop is reminiscent of what was happening in Kenya in the 1980s when poaching was completely out of control and half the elephants in Africa went from like 1.2 million to 600,000 elephants in the span of 10 years until the poaching was brought under control. And a lot of people are worried that we're heading into a similar situation now. What are the numbers today on poaching? So it's really hard to figure out exactly what's happening out there because elephants live deep in the forests and savannas. Often they're they're killed by poachers and nobody ever finds the carcasses. They decompose, they're ripped apart by scavengers like hyenas and vultures. So sometimes we just don't know exactly how many elephants are getting killed. But that said, the best estimates indicate that there are tens of thousands of elephants being poached every year across Africa, somewhere between 10, 20, 30,000, maybe more. And that is a higher number than any time since the, the mid to late 1980s. Wow. What, what is the population approximately of, of elephants in Kenya? 
I think it's around 50,000, 40 to 50,000. And okay. in Africa, the total continent, there was 1.2 million uh, in 1980. In 1990, there were 600,000. I'm just curious, how do events like this affect Kenyans? They get really upset because Kenya derives a lot of income and pride and identity from its wildlife. Tourism is one of the biggest industries in Kenya. It generates over a billion dollars per year and something like five or 600,000 jobs. So it's really scary to Kenyans to have their wildlife being wiped out, especially when the demand for the ivory is 8,000 miles away in China. I mean, given how lucrative ivory is, I and mean, if we look just at the case of Kenya, is it time for the Kenyan government uh, to think about a full-scale military operation to protect the elephants and not just park ranger protection? You know, they sometimes call in the military to help out in some of these African countries, but like in Congo, they use the military to fight poachers. Um, it's just the distances are too vast, and it's like the war on drugs. I mean, think of how much money the American government and others spend on trying to intercept drug shipments and to patrol the skies and the seas and the borders, you know, billions of dollars and lots of resources, and the drugs are still hitting the streets of the United States. So the idea is no matter how much you beef up law enforcement, that's not going to stop it if there's just this insatiable demand. And so the effort a lot of these wildlife groups are trying to do right now is trying to convince people in China that buying ivory is bad. It doesn't just result in the death of elephants. It results in the death of people. And they're trying to change the culture. And to me, what's interesting, and I haven't been to China, but what's interesting is these countries are getting increasingly modern and sophisticated, yet they still adhere to these traditional values and beliefs. Vietnam's economy is booming, but people there still believe rhino horn powder can cure cancer. And there's absolutely no scientific proof of that. So it seems like these beliefs are so deeply seated that it's going to be very difficult to reverse them. But everybody I talk to says that's the answer, and that's the only answer. The New York Times' Jeff Gettleman speaking with us from Nairobi. Much obliged, Jeff. Thank you. Glad to help. Still to come on the program, we go down under for the heat and bushfires on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The new year brings new opportunities and new challenges for low-wage workers in Thailand. On January 1st, the country's minimum wage was raised to 300 baht, or about $10 a day. About 10% of the workforce in Thailand is made up of migrant workers from neighboring countries like Myanmar, Cambodia, and Laos. They should be eligible for the pay bump if they can prove they're in the country legally. And as Bruce Wallace reports from Chiang Mai, Thailand, that just got harder. A rutted dirt track runs between rows of raised bamboo huts in a makeshift camp about half an hour east of Chiang Mai. Residents gather around a communal water tank to wash clothes and dishes. About 300 people live here, almost all of them from Myanmar's Shan State, a five-hour drive north. The camp is set in a field between two blocks of new townhouses. The people in the camp are building the townhouses. Sai Tung Jai lives at the end of a row of huts. He moved here from Shan State about two years ago. He got a work permit soon after he arrived. Thailand has offered these to undocumented migrants on and off since the early 90s. He says his employer dropped the ball, his permit expired, and he missed the December 14th deadline for nationality verification. 
Right now, I'm really confused. Because my work permit's expired, I'm basically illegal. If the police find me, will they arrest me? Will they send me back to the border? I don't know what to do. He's not alone. There are around two and a half million migrant workers in Thailand. About three quarters are from Myanmar, also known as Burma. Most are manual laborers, construction and agriculture around Chiang Mai, fishing and factories elsewhere. Less than half of them met the December 14th deadline that would make them eligible for the new minimum wage, national health benefits, and schools. For the million and a half workers who didn't meet the deadline, there's confusion. It's been reported that the Thai government will extend the deadline, but at the same time, it's been threatening crackdowns and deportations. Nong Phone pours concrete at a construction site seven days a week. Since her work permit expired earlier this year, she hustles between home and the site. She's afraid to go anywhere else. A couple months ago, immigration arrested seven people from her work site. She says she was too quick for them. Andy Hall, a migration researcher and worker advocate at Mahadol University in Bangkok, says that giving migrants a way to work legally is good. The process in itself, in theory, is a good process to legalize the work, as it's an original process which we haven't seen anywhere else in the world. In practice, though, Hall says corruption reigns. Government agents demand kickbacks and funnel applicants to private, unregulated brokers. He says a process which should cost $30 can end up costing closer to $500, three months' wages for a typical worker. The Thai labor ministry didn't respond to questions about these points. Thai business groups, the Myanmar government, and international workers' organizations have pressed for a deadline extension. The promised crackdowns haven't materialized yet. In the past, Hall says, similar crackdowns have opened up an extortion bonanza. Every country has the right to define its borders. Every country has the right to deport people in humane conditions and deport them back to their country of origin if they entered the country illegally. Uh, I don't think most people have a problem with that. But what we have a problem with is using this context to extort and to undermine the rule of law. Thailand's policy is evolving as the region prepares for the planned 2015 economic integration of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. ASEAN, as it's known, is a European Union-style collaboration between 10 countries. Integration will make moving between countries easier for some workers, although mostly in highly skilled jobs. Jackie Pollock, who directs Chiang Mai's Migrant Assistance Program, says there's no question that ASEAN Union is a positive step, but it probably won't directly benefit the low-skilled workers her group helps. There is more of a sense growing of being part of a region. Now in the schools, they're teaching about ASEAN and they're teaching ASEAN languages in the schools, which was unheard of 10 years ago. So I think children now will grow up with more of a sense of being an ASEAN knight. Um, And that can hopefully only be a good thing. For the moment, though, many are just focused on cementing their identity as legal migrant workers. For The World, I'm Bruce Wallace in Chiang Mai, Thailand. Get a first-hand look at the challenging living conditions for some of those Burmese migrants in Thailand. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. Our next story is also about immigration in reverse. It's about a family in Britain, but originally from Ghana, whose members are planning to go back home. It's a family of Oswald Botang. If you're a clothes horse, you may have heard of him. The 45-year-old Botang is a British-born men's fashion designer. His parents emigrated from Ghana to England in the 1950s. Boteng's father was a dapper dresser, and Oswald followed in his footsteps. But he went much further than just dressing well. He set his sights on London's famed fashion street, Savile Row. The tradition of that runs for centuries. You know, and when I started, I was 18 years old. I was very young, doing working in a very old, established 
business. And I had a very strong point of view and a very unique point of view. I took the kind of traditional British suit and I made it modern. Imagine the fine fabrics and bespoke lines of a crisp British suit and then add some sharp color. Boateng recently spoke about his style with Zainab Badawi of the BBC television program Hard Talk. Color, the way I use color has always been understood as I've used color in a very African context because I've got a, a particular taste in certain rich colors. But I've always said, no, I just use color as a tool to make something very traditional, very modern. That's no different. But, but, yeah. but the reality of the way I combine my colors has always had a strong African but awareness. You, you compare in terms your work of text, to Vivian so Westwood, for instance, Jean-Paul Gaultier. For years, they've been using overtly African influences yeah. in their work. And you... Could I have chose, taped your birthright. Uh, yes, uh, yeah, and, and I, yeah, and uh, no. I think probably at the time I needed to establish myself as a designer. I didn't want to be established as an des- African designer, and I think I've established myself to such an extent now that me embracing African fabrics and really using them in a very interesting way is it's no longer just badged as an African designer. It's like it's a designer who's understood who has African roots. And this is how he wants to work with that fabrication. I think it has a different meaning. And I think that's very important. When Boateng landed on Savile Row in 2002, many were unaware that he was African. But as he became more established, Boateng's cultural trademark has fueled his popularity. Now with the economy growing back in Ghana, Boateng's family is moving home and Boateng is also looking to Africa. I'd love to have, I'm going to say shopping malls, but a development of new types of cities which have a sort of environmental awareness that um, are very interestingly designed because the landscape of Africa is so undefined. So you can really make it something that you dream about or something you read about in books. You know, it's, it's possible there. It may seem odd, a British luxury brand designer excited by the prospect of setting up shop in Africa. I mean, most Africans can't afford or are interested in a $3,000 Oswald Boateng suit. Still, as Boateng told the BBC's Zainab Badawi, it may not seem practical, but symbolically, being part of Africa is crucial to him. Being a luxury brand of African descent, I think, is a very important message. It's, it doesn't mean that I don't care because I'm in a luxury industry. And you can reconcile that with the oh, fact that your suits cost so, more than no, 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 what I, people no, do no, in no, years I, ca- and years. I care about one thing, is, is I want to see Africa move forward. I want to be in a position where I can actually open a shop, in, uh, many shops in Africa. And right. In fact, I'm looking at that right now. But I'm saying that I think that's, I think that's a very important point. It doesn't mean because you know, we're, we're Africans we can't be successful. Designer Oswald Boateng on his plans to take his brand of fashion back to the country his parents emigrated from Ghana. We've got some fine examples of the designer's work at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, much of what defined Haiti in the past is fading now, even everyday objects. Plus, just when you thought David Bowie might have faded from the scene, he's back and the fans are swooning. I've seen on Twitter this morning several people talking about being in tears listening to this song. That's all ahead on The World. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. 
MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. As our politicians in Washington argue over President Obama's nominee for defense secretary and his views about Israel, Israeli politicians are busy campaigning. They have a national election in just two weeks. The polls suggest that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his Likud party will win the most seats in parliament, but the campaign has been shaken up by a new political personality, Netanyahu's former chief of staff. The world's Matthew Bell reports from Jerusalem. Naftali Bennett doesn't neatly match the usual character types in Israeli politics. He's a 40-year-old high-tech entrepreneur, who likes to talk about economic justice. He's a veteran of an elite army unit. He's also an observant Jew motivated by religious ideology, though his political party includes secular Israelis too. Hi, my name is Ayat Shaked. I'm Jeremy Gimpel. I'm Yoni Shedbun. I am Oti Yogev. I live in Samaria. I live in North Tel Aviv. It doesn't matter how you dress. If you want to bring Jewish values and Zionist ideals to Israel, the Bait Yehudi is your home. Your home. Your home. In recent weeks, Bennett's Jewish home party has surged in the polls. It's projected to win the third most seats in parliament by grabbing support from voters on the Israeli right. These are people who might otherwise choose Netanyahu and his Likud party. The biggest policy difference between Bennett and his political opponents on the right and left, though, is probably how they talk about the idea of a Palestinian state. I believe I'm the only one, and our party is the only party on this podium that uh, opposes founding a Palestinian state within the land of Israel, between the Jordan and uh, the Mediterranean. That's Naftali Bennett at an election debate this morning in Jerusalem, where he said it's time for Israel to take a fresh look at an old problem. If a Palestinian state would be founded just a few hundred meters from here, by the way, we're on uh, Mount Scopus uh, right now, it would ensure uh, sort of the Hobbesian uh, lifestyle of uh, uh, eternal strife <coughs> and miserable life for the next 200 years between us and the Palestinians. Bennett accuses the current Israeli government of pursuing a confused policy in the occupied West Bank. He says Netanyahu is promising all things to all sides. For right-wing Israelis, he's building settlements. For the U.S. and the rest of the international community, he says he's ready to talk about a two-state solution. Bennett says the best thing for Israel is to annex large parts of the West Bank, including most of the Jewish settlements. Every time over the past 20 years that we handed over land, either with an agreement or without an agreement unilaterally, uh, we got as a result war, misery for both sides. And there's no reason why Israel should go down that road again, Bennett says. His critics say such views add up to dangerous extremism. Candidate Isaac Herzog of the Labor Party says just by running, Bennett has pushed the Likud party and its ideological allies further to the right. They will not be able in any way, unfortunately I must say, to be uh, proactive or move forward on any plan that gives any hope for the region. And that means we are doomed to uh, eternal conflict and bloodshed. The question is, will Bennett and his Jewish home party have an even greater impact on Israeli policy after the election? Political science professor Reuven Hazan of Hebrew University says the answer is yes and no, depending on whether Bennett and his party join the next coalition government. 
Yes, because the more seats he gets, the more prominent of a position he will have if he's part of the governing coalition. The no answer is if he is that extremist and he gets that many seats, he might push Netanyahu to bring in parties from the center into the coalition because bringing him in would be ideologically too extreme. One thing to know about the Jewish Home Party, Hazan says, is that some of its other candidates are even more extreme than Naftali Bennett, so they're letting Bennett be the public face for the party. In an interview with the BBC today, Bennett was asked if he joins the next coalition government, would he try to prevent the two-state solution from becoming reality? I'll do everything in my ability to prevent Israel from committing suicide knowingly. It doesn't make sense. Yes, most of the world supports the two-state solution, Bennett said, and that includes Israel's most important allies in Europe and the United States. But he added that this is one of those instances in history where the common wisdom is wrong. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. GeoQuiz today, we're headed to Australia, to that country's two southernmost states, and you get to name them. It's summertime down there right now, and scorching doesn't begin to describe where the mercury's at. This region is suffering from soaring high temperatures and high winds this week. We're talking well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, but that's not the worst of it. Hundreds of scattered bushfires are burning thousands of acres of forest and farmland. We'll hear more about how Australia is battling the fires in a few minutes. First, though, try to name the country's two southernmost states. People have long migrated to the United States from the central Mexican state of Zacatecas. Now the state is facing a huge challenge as thousands of people move back because of rising deportations or fewer jobs north of the border. Many returning families are enrolling their kids in Mexican schools, but many of those kids were raised in the U.S. and don't speak Spanish. A new project is underway in Zacatecas to teach Mexican teachers English so they can help those students with their new lives. Reporter Miles Esty has that story. It's Saturday morning in the rural Mexican state of Zacatecas, and we're in English class. Antonio Acosta gives basic lessons to 35 teachers. English levels vary. Some teachers, like Nora Santana, speak English fine. But she's worried about the new students in her classes, those who grew up in the United States and have trouble keeping up with classes in Spanish. Uh, they, they feel so confused. Uh-huh. They're so confused and they don't understand everything that I teach in Spanish. Other teachers, like Eduardo Garcia, have trouble explaining why the English classes are important. The say and only one kid, no speak, nothing, Spanish. Over the years, Acosta, an education official here, has witnessed the influx of school-age kids returning to Mexico. They come with their parents, who've left the U.S. because they're undocumented or couldn't find work. Acosta says the kids can feel disoriented in a Mexican classroom, like foreigners, but in what is supposedly their own nation. So Acosta is pioneering a project to get Mexican teachers more comfortable in English. Some believe the money might be better spent other ways. But Acosta says the English classes are critical to help teachers and their students adjust. If the teachers learn English, the basic English level, they are going to use these kind of tools 
to communicate with the children that are coming from the United States. The class is best suited for teachers like 28-year-old Ari Rodriguez. Rodriguez says she can have a tough time communicating with some of her English-speaking students, and she keeps her English crib notes handy. She also mentions Juan, though he goes by John in the U.S. He's a soft-spoken 13-year-old who just moved here from Texas. When you hear Juan and Rodriguez speak, it's clear his Spanish is improving fast. And Juan is getting good grades here, too, except in Spanish and history. He still can't articulate his answers to the teachers. It's kind of hard like, to explain it, like when... I don't know how to say the words. I just like try to explain it to them. But for most students, speaking isn't the hardest part. It's classroom comprehension. Meet Ashley. She's 11 and born and raised in Southern California. She just moved to Zacatecas with her parents, who were undocumented in the U.S. Ashley speaks Spanish perfectly, but has always done her reading and writing in English. Growing up there, I mean, you guys obviously went to school learning English, right? Like you, yes. So all, all of your learning so far has been in English. What's yes. it like, like going to a Spanish school all of a sudden? Weird. <laughs> I ask Ashley if reading and writing in Spanish is tough. Sort of, yeah. The writing is sort of good. The reading, I really don't read that much in Spanish, so I don't know about reading. <laughs> Ashley's younger brother, Joel, also finds reading tough. So do you under, when you read it, do you understand what it's saying or not too much? Not too much. But Joel's relieved that he's here with his older sister. And a cousin is here too. Being together, speaking English in the schoolyard, it makes their new life in Mexico easier. And they still keep in touch in English with their friends back in the States over Facebook. Luis Roberto Castañeda directs Zacatecas Migration Institute. He says of the 13,000 or so kids who've lived in the U.S. and are now in the Zacatecas school system, nearly all have some difficulty at school. And there are no national programs in Mexico to attend to these students' needs. Tener una atención al 100% en el seguimiento de la clase se les dificulta. Castañeda says that the U.S.-born students can't fully understand classes in Spanish and end up doing mental translations back to English. It slows them down. Like Castañeda, Acosta believes his pilot project is more than learning English. It's about getting teachers tuned into the fact that their students straddle two worlds. They have two cultures, American and Mexican culture. Where am I from? This is the reason because we are going to, to, to do uh, this kind of strategies to solve this kind of binational culture, American and, and Mexican Though the courses keep the English simple, Acosta and many of the teachers believe projects like these represent a huge first step toward helping U.S.-born children feel more welcome in Mexico. What am I doing? Sorry? What am I doing? For the world, this is Miles Esty in Zacatecas, Mexico. You are running. You are running. What am I doing? Barbed wire fences, fully armed border officials, and the slower pace of Mexico's pueblos. Miles sent us a slideshow featuring some of the artwork from the students and how they see their new life in Mexico. That's at theworld.org.
Now to Australia, where one story is dominating the news right now. Hello, you're watching ABC News 24. I'm Joe O'Brien. New South Wales residents are facing what is potentially the worst fire threat in its history and conditions in some areas are rated as catastrophic. In addition to New South Wales, two other southeastern states have been hit by massive bushfires. They are Victoria and the island state of Tasmania. The answers to our geo-quiz today. In southern Tasmania alone, 50,000 acres of forest and farmland have gone up in smoke. Hundreds of homes have been destroyed too. This man fled one of the fast-moving fires on the island. We saw tornadoes of fire just coming across towards us, and uh, the next thing we knew, everything was on fire everywhere, all around us. The widespread emergency has prompted authorities to raise the fire threat level for southern Australia to catastrophic. The BBC's Phil Mercer is following developments from Sydney. Here in New South Wales, Australia's most populous state, firefighters are battling more than 130 outbreaks and we understand that 40 of those are out of the control of the emergency services. So a very serious situation here in New South Wales. Fire crews across Victoria are also on high alert. So this is a problem that is affecting much of southern Australia, which is enduring some of its most dangerous fire conditions this part of the country has ever seen. Last year, parts of Australia were struggling with the opposite problem, too much wet weather. That's actually made matters worse now. See, all that rain boosted the growth of grasses and vegetation. They've since dried up thanks to soaring temperatures and high winds, providing plenty of fuel for the bushfires. And then there's heat lightning, says New South Wales Fire Chief Rob Rogers. We've had two days of a lot of lightning in the southern part of the state where we've had a lot of ignitions. So currently we have 99 fires on our books and more than 20 of those fires are now not contained. It was 107 degrees in Hobart, Tasmania this week, one of the hottest days on record there, going back to the 1880s. And in Sydney, Phil Mercer says today's temperature was a scorching 109. Well, when you step outside here in Sydney, it is like walking into a furnace, like having a a very hot hand pressing down on your head. And it's not only the bushfires that are of uh, concern for the authorities, but uh, heat-related illnesses as well. It is a potential killer to the elderly, to the infirm and the very young. So uh, these are dangerous times, not only for people in the countryside, in bushfire-prone regions, but also for people in bigger towns and cities who are sweltering in this unprecedented heat wave. Agnieszka Radwanska would agree with that. The world's fourth-ranked player in women's tennis is taking part in the Sydney International ahead of next week's Australian Open. With temperatures courtside over 110 degrees today, Radwanska said it was just too hot to play tennis. But she played anyway and advanced in the tournament despite the heat. For many residents of southeastern Australia, it's too hot to even think about tennis. They have more pressing concerns, as Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard made clear today. What everybody is worried about is that a day of extreme heat will fan those flames. So the best advice I can give to people is be ready, be prepared, already have your plan in place as to what you will do if your house, your property faces the worst. Amazingly, no deaths have been reported so far, but the hot, dry and windy conditions are sticking around. So Australian authorities aren't letting their guard down. As one New South Wales firefighter put it, you don't get conditions worse than this. This is PRI.
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Author Amy Wilentz has a new book out today about Haiti. It's called Farewell, Fred Voodoo. That's what some foreign correspondents used to call the Haitian man on the street, Fred Voodoo. Most reporters wouldn't use the term these days. It's gone by the wayside, like many things in Haiti in the decades since Amy Wilentz started visiting the island nation. In her new book, she chronicles those changes, including what's happened to everyday objects like chairs. Wilentz recalls the first chair she bought in Haiti. She says it was the model there in the 1980s. People made them in their own houses, or there were sometimes studios where they were made by bunches of people, but they were authentically Haitian peasant chairs. And everybody sat in them, and you sat in them if you were a market lady, and you sat in them if you were a tourist at a grand hotel, and you sat in them if you were a rich person up in the hills or a poor person in the shanty towns. So a truly like democratic everywhere. chair. A democratic chair, exactly. So what's happening to the Haiti chair? Why are you so dismayed? Well, I guess no one in the world will be surprised to hear that the little Haitian chair is being replaced by the little Chinese plastic mold white chair that everybody knows so well. I mean, there, there are two that sit on my corner in L.A. in someone's garden. That's happening everywhere. Why do you feel it's kind of more acute, this, uh, this issue in Haiti? To undercut a Haitian article of some kind, a Haitian item, you have to be selling very, very cheap. But that is, in fact, what happens with the, uh, with the Chinese chair. It undersells the Haitian chair. It's cheaper to make. It's cheaper to make and take across the ocean and bring to Haiti than it is to make a Haitian chair. Also, I have to add this, because of disclosure, uh, the Chinese chair is more comfortable. <laughs> What would Haitians rather sit in? Well, wouldn't you rather sit in a chair that's more comfortable? Yeah, often outside observers have a sentimental, and this is true of me all the time with Haiti because I've been going for so long, we have a sentimental attachment to something Haitian that Haitians like roll their eyes and say, yeah, but the two legs on the chair were always sticking into my butt. What do you think is lost you know? by this kind of switch from the Haiti chair to the Chinese molded plastic chair? Well, it's symbolic more than the chair itself, but a Haitianness, a, a cultural identity, cultural sovereignty, control over the way your environment is and looks, and I see that eroding more and more in Haiti in so many ways. I mean, if it were just a chair, that'd be one thing. It'd be kind of a curiosity. That's but as right. you point out, there are other things as well that kind of uh, are, are emblematic of this. Talk about that. I'm seeing it all over the place. One thing I point out in the book is that you can have an entire Haitian Creole dinner, and when you look at it, you realize all the produce, uh, the tomato paste, the uh, rice, it all comes from another country. Then you also see it in the clothing. Instead of Haitian seamstresses and Haitian tailors making Haitian clothing, very typical old-fashioned clothing, you now see American secondhand clothing. Uh, you see it in the tourist icon of Haiti and in Africa also was the proud, beautiful, slender woman carrying produce in a basket on her head. You know, that's the typical postcard. But now that same Haitian woman carries produce from the Dominican Republic in a bag on her head, and the bag is a plastic bag, overstuffed plastic bag. It doesn't mean that Haitians are no longer Haitian, but it just means little by little the culture is eroded. Amy, as the third anniversary of the earthquake approaches this Saturday, what, what images of Haiti do you flash to and which still trouble you? Well, I think of the National Palace, to be honest. 
The National Palace was a building that was built with the help of the United States Marines during the American occupation of Haiti from 1915 to 1934, which hardly anyone here remembers anymore, but the Haitians certainly do. And it was a beautiful three-domed building where endless dictators and hopeful popular presidents had worked and ruled. And in the earthquake, it was kind of knocked askew, and it looked kind of drunk and sad, and the domes were leaning up against each other like, you know, drug addicts on the corner. And then it stayed there for almost three years after the earthquake, looking out at the people of Haiti and them looking back at it, this symbol of national sovereignty like the White House. In fact, they sometimes call it the White House, in ruins among them in the center of the city. And Now, finally, it's been taken down, and I'm so glad it's been taken down because I thought it was a really bad thing for one's spirit and psyche to have that facing one all the time. But who was it taken down by? Another foreign group, Sean Penn's group, in concert with others, took it down. So it, it took foreigners to build it. It took foreigners to take it down. So where does that leave Haiti, really? Is this country in charge of its own fate? You know, that's what I keep thinking about. Amy Wilentz's new book, Farewell, Fred Voodoo, is out today. Thank you very much, Amy. Good to speak with you. Thanks a lot. And finally today, it's David Bowie's birthday. He turned 66, and you may feel so what? But it so happens that the thin white duke has musically been out of the public eye for 10 years. And that's when his last CD came out. And that was also when Bowie had a hell scare for a blocked artery and canceled the tour to promote that album. Last year, many fans hoped he'd make a surprise appearance at the London Olympics, but alas, he did not. And so today, it came as a total surprise when David Bowie released a new single and video. The song is called, Where Are We Now? Had to get the train From Potsdam Flats You never knew that that I could do that Just walk in the day There are going to be people out there, amazingly, who will be thinking, pop musician releases pop single, big deal, what's the news story? <laughs> yeah, so what, right? That's John Wilson with the BBC Arts programme Front Row, and here's how he answers his own question. David Bowie's no ordinary musician. Uh, you know, he's one who redefined popular culture throughout the 1970s and has rarely rested on his laurels. But in the last ten years or so, he's been largely silent. We presumed he'd all but retired from the music business. Where Are We Now has generated a lot of buzz. Fans are not only surprised with the release, but also, as one critic noted, the gorgeously fragile voice. Here's the BBC's John Wilson again. For Bowie fans, some people can barely contain their excitement. (laughs) I've seen on Twitter this morning several people talking about being in tears listening to this song. So, I mean, this is... okay. it's a pop release, but he is an artist. He's a proper artist. He doesn't release records because it's time for another record. He releases records when there is something for him to say. A little too anthemic, in my humble opinion. But hey, anytime Major Tom checks in from outer space, we'll listen. What's your take? Do you like what Bowie has to say with Where Are We Now? Cash in your thoughts and see the video for the tune at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, 
I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for being with us. As long as there's sun As long as there's rain As long as there's rain As long as there's The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. By the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International